0: If you have a copy of God's Word, open it to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 1 through 11 this morning. It says in the book of Haggai chapter 1 verse 1, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of shelthiel the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Let's pray. Lord, we, we hear your word, and we first thank you for it, Lord, that, that we have a copy of your word in front of us. That we're free to open it, carry it, read it, study it, learn from it. That you enlighten us to your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us today through your word. That the Holy Spirit uses your word to convince us, to convict us, to persuade us, and to heal us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless and attend your word this morning as we know you will. Your promise is that your word will not return void. And I, I believe it is our prayer as a church, Lord, that you would have your way with us with your word, that you would convict us and refresh us and stir us to love and good works, Lord, and may our eyes be fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Be glorified, we pray now as we continue to worship you through the teaching of your word. And we pray it all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, last week we looked at um, the first few verses here in Haggai chapter 1, and I want to uh, l- summarize real quickly. Um, we looked at how God was not rebuking the people here for, for a ultimately for attending their house, right? It's, it's not a sin to build a house. Um, and so God wasn't commanding them also to rebuild the temple so that he would have a house to live in, right? Um, we, we know God declared in the Old Testament that nothing can contain him. He fills the heavens and the earth. There's not a place that you can go that he's not there. Um, and so he wasn't requesting a house that he could live in. God was rebuking the people because their neglect of rebuilding the temple was the same as them saying, God, we don't want you. God, we don't need you. Because the, the tabernacle of meeting or the tent of meeting to Solomon's temple, those places symbolized the blessing of God's presence among his people. And when they cared very little, if nothing at all at this time about rebuilding the temple, what they were saying was, Is that they really didn't care about God dwelling among them God dwelling in their midst and so the people worshipping when when the people came to worship at the temple or the tabernacle of presence it was their way of expressing their pleasure in the presence of God that's what the ceremonial uh, rituals or religious rituals were for um, and so the big picture is that they are rejecting God by not caring whether he dwells with them or not. That's the, the big picture that we looked at last week. They were not caring whether or not God was among them. And, and we talked about how often we do the same. This morning I want us to continue looking at Haggai chapter 1. And I want to zero in on verses 1 and 2 and point out a very sobering way in which God gets their attention. There's, there's two ways that I want to show you this morning, but I want to start with this very sobering, subtle way that God gets their attention. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the wor- word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. So now, now we're quoting what God says here. This is what God says to you, Haggai says. This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now here, here's the subtle but sobering attention grabber. We notice here that he says, "This people, not my people." He says, "This people, not my people." And it seems subtle, but we know that every word from God is important. You'll remember a, a, a very well-known verse that's quoted often. Second Chronicles 7:14 says, "If my people, right? If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So it's not that when we need to repent, we're all of a sudden not his people. Because in Chronicles he's saying, my people need to repent, but he still calls them my people. But here in Haggai, we can't miss it that he says, this people says. So what what is God saying to the people here in Haggai? Is God saying that they're not his people? Is God saying that he has rejected them altogether? No, he's not saying that. What God is doing by saying these people instead of my people is he's calling attention to their behavior. They are behaving like just people. They're not behaving like His people. And so because what He's gripping them with when He says consider your ways, He's calling them to examine themselves and He does the very first thing is He says this people, which should grip their attention and be very concerned that he's not saying my people say. Very similar situation with Jesus when he speaks to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He says, if, if you'll recall, he says, but I have this against you. Right? You're, you may be doing this and you may be doing this, but, but I have this against you and you need to repent. And if you do, then, then blessings upon you, right? But if not, I'll remove the lampstand from your midst. And so what God is doing, and I love this, he, He's using, He's awakening them to their, their horrific behavior towards Him. And sometimes, I mean, it's, it's a slap in the face to hear as, and, and remember now, remember, these are, these are the faithful people. These are the people that left everything in Babylon to come back. 5% of the population is what it's estimated came back to, to rebuild the temple and reclaim their land and glorify God. And so sometimes even the faithful, right, even the faithful, even the people that come to church all the time and do, the, do work ministry and, and do a lot within the church, sometimes we need to slap in the face. And, and this is what God is doing. He's immediately slapping their face and say, this people, not my people. He's, he's, he's calling your attention. Look at how you're behaving. You're not behaving like someone who loves me. So that's the first and seemingly subtle but absolutely starking way that he grabs their attention. But then he says in verse 3 Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? What he's doing now is he's exposing their hypocrisy, which is what he was. First, right, he's saying this people, not my people, to call their attention to what is, what is it, why is he saying it like that? And then he tells them why. And he's exposing them or ex- calling them on their hypocrisy. It's not that they're putting panels in their house that's the problem. The problem is is that they're saying it's not time. It's like saying, you know what? It's not time because we just don't have time for God. And if we're honest, if we're honest and we've been a Christian for for very long, we're, we're able to discern that we do similar things. We do similar things. How often we say in our own personal life, you know, I just don't have time for God right now. The problem is, is, is that one of the things that they're saying is that we don't have the resources to build the temple. Right? I mean, hey, we're, we're out here sowing the seed and the harvest is little. We're earning wages and it just seems to disappear. We're, we're collecting the grapes and all, all the produce and, and it's like we're not even gathering anything and, and God admits yeah that's what you're seeing that's, what, that's exactly what you're seeing so the, the, one of the excuses at least is hey we don't have the resources to do this right now man God's I mean the harvest is, is not plentiful but here's what's interesting here's what's interesting Having wood paneled houses was not a necessity. It was a want. They had homes. They were just going in and making them better. While God's house laid desolate. And guess what the temple walls and floors were lined with in Solomon's temple? Wood panels. remember cedar panels so here, here they are going from needs in their home to wants in their home and using the very resources that you would use to rebuild the temple to make their houses more lavish and it's not that wood panels in their houses was sinful sinful It's that they were going past need and into want for themselves before the need for or recognition of God was even being considered. And they're complaining about not having resources, and yet they're using the very same resources in their homes to make them next level if you will instead of using them to rebuild the temple so God is getting their attention in two ways number one by by calling them these people rather than my people God is making them aware by saying this that their behavior is not lining up with their confession which is Yahweh is our God that was their confession Yahweh is our God but they weren't behaving that way their behavior was equal to them saying we don't need God And God backing that gripping rebuke up with exposing their hypocrisy by showing them that they do have resources. Now, here's some takeaway questions for us. As we think about God gripping their attention and calling them on their hypocrisy, what are we saying we can't do for God or with God in our life? What are we saying that we don't have time for God in our life? And in those things, what are we saying we can't do for God or with God that we are actually expending the same time and energy and resources for things without God? And what are we spending our time doing with other people while neglecting time with God? In what ways are we saying we don't have the resources to invest in our relationship with God we need to think about those things. I, I pray, my prayer, and as I was studying, is that we would, we would hear these things and that we would sincerely pray to God to, to search our hearts and to show us any way and any ways in which we're doing the exact thing. And here's, here's, the, here's the beautiful thing about this. When we ask God to search our hearts, to expose any sinful ways, any sinful neglects, any sinful commitments, that, any, any way we might be sending by commission or omission, when we ask God to search our hearts, here's what we, here's what we can find joy in. Here's what we can find joy in. That we have a merciful God. We have a merciful, gracious God that doesn't want us to hide from Him. He wants us to run to Him. He doesn't want us to go find healing from the world or from other things. He wants us to find healing from Him because He's the only one that can truly heal. He doesn't want us to go hide like Adam and Eve. He wants us to run to Him. And we have the promise that we can boldly enter His throne room and find mercy and grace every time we need it. And I don't know about you, but that's every time for me. Amen? Amen. Is there ever a time that we don't need mercy and grace? God... God is unceasingly merciful towards His children. Unceasingly. He he gives liberally and without reproach. He he doesn't stop us as His children go, now hold on, remember what you did yesterday? Remember how you were neglecting me and you did that thing without me? That's not how He is. He gives liberally and without reproach. Open arms, come here. Come to daddy. Let's get this straightened out, right? So you feel once again the deep and abiding and surpassing love that I have for you. We have an example of, of God's unceasing mercy here, His, His great mercy here in Haggai. Look at verse 5 through 11. It says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Right? Let me just stop right there and just say, that is an unbelievable mercy that God would even come after us and speak those words. That God would even say, consider your ways. It's, it's abounding it's, it's mercy. But he goes on, You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. I'm going to show you how him blowing it away is mercy. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Why why is he blowing it away? Because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. You see the contrast there? What are they caring about? Not the Lord. Not his presence not his dwelling among them, not his divine blessing of presence. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what ground, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Here, here's one thing that i, I, I Forgive me that this is kind of a rabbit trail I'm inserting this, but here... Here's what I hear a lot of times when tragedy strikes from Christians, all those sinful people in that city. That's why it happened. This is happening because of God's people. Drought. Little bit little harvest. This isn't happening because of pagans. In the city, this is happening because of God's people not behaving like God's people. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. What we see is—is is this? Here's what we see. What we see here is God's gracious and merciful tending of His flock. This is grace and mercy. And I want us to think about the mercy and grace shown here. Here's what God's saying. When he says this this people, these people, not my people, what he's saying is is that you're rejecting me. You, 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 right now, in your life, are rejecting me. just like we do at times. And, and here's, the, here's the mercy. Here, here's just the beginning of the mercy. God, what God doesn't respond with is calling fire down from heaven to consume them. It's unbelievable. I mean, if we're honest we're honest, we're just like the disciples and when we're rejected our natural response, if we could would be to call down fire from heaven you remember when the disciples did that Jesus said no, right because it would consume you too that was my little addition I mean, when we're rejected, we want to call down fire and consume. That's our sinful, natural response. Because it's an attack on our perceived self-righteousness. And we don't like that in our natural condition. But God is merciful. He's rich in mercy and beyond understanding in His love towards His children. So how is, how is God tending His, his flock here? Verses 9 through 11. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house it lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil... On what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. It seems, hear me on this, it seems at the surface that he's not tending. It seems surface level that he's not being merciful. Because, I mean, what we read here. It seems surface level that he's not being merciful to his flock, he's actually being neglectful. I mean, God was reducing the quantity of their necessities. Why? How is that gracious? And here's here's one reason why it's gracious. Because God knows that if He withholds our needs we will eventually be reminded that He is our provider not us. I'll withhold some wants. I'll just invest in different things but start taking away the needs and we drop to our knees and we start looking to Him again. And so he's, he's reducing the, the quality of their needs so that they'll confess and acknowledge once again that he is the provider and he is needed. God knows that if he tends to us through withholding, we will eventually look back to him to provide. And that's mercy, dear friends that's mercy another thing another reason that this is mercy is that God God knows that with holding temporal things from us we'll do this we will eventually humble ourselves and refocus our attention from temporal wants to eternal needs Oh how easily we can get carried away with wants while neglecting and temporal wants at that and neglect our eternal need which can only be found and satisfied in Christ. So that's what God's doing here. He's saying you don't You're behaving like you don't need me. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remind you that you do. And that's mercy. I mean, to the natural mind, God withholding temporal substance seems cruel. But Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God and so to the natural mind God withholding these temporal substances seem cruel but any time and hear me on this any time we can be reminded of our absolute need for God for all things temporal and eternal it's not cruel it's mercy and it's grace And let me me add let me add this because this is also mercy undeserving. The alternative to God's gracious tending is calamity. Do, Do we understand that? The alternative to God graciously intervening and tending to us is calamity for us Romans 1 tells us that God can and has the right to leave us to ourself and give us what we want which only takes us deeper into sin and further away from him but I, I think it's in second Samuel that we read but God saves his people from calamity this is This is God saving them from calamity because they're on the road to calamity by rejecting Him. And He's intervening and tending to them and being merciful and gracious to them by withholding things they need and want so that they'll turn their face back to Him and acknowledge Him. Quite often in our life, we behave in such a way that we act as if God is our stage hand. He's just, you know, we're, we're acting out our life and he's over here off stage. And when we need a prop to fulfill our desires, we say, hey, God. Hey, stage hand. I need it now. When the stage hand doesn't do it, we, we get mad at the stage hand. Stagehand isn't giving us what we need. But listen, here's the thing. God is not the stagehand of our life. He's the director of our life. And so it's more like God may be over there and when we say, hey, I need this, He says, no, you don't. That's not in the play of your life. Not for me. Those aren't my plans for you. I have good plans. And what you're asking for, I'm not going to give you because it will hurt you. I have your best interest in mind. You're my child. And I'm telling you, no. I'm the director of your life. You have to realize this. And I'm going to do some things in your life so that you'll acknowledge me once again as the director of your life and not the stagehand. How often do we pray for God to give us, you fill in the blank. How often do we pray for God to give us, you can fill in the blank, and what we're not saying is, God, give me you. God, a lot of times we say, God, give me more of this, but it's not, God, give me more of you. And so we can become short-sighted, and we can love the gifts rather than the giver and that's what they're doing and that's what we do too often they were being short-sighted and thinking they could provide for themselves rather than seeing that everything we have is because of the blessings of God and oh how we do that too often something doesn't go right we don't get the right return on investment and here's what our response is our, typically our immediate response is to do more We don't, oh I didn't get the outcome that I want in this so I'm just going to do more right I mean they're not getting the, the return on grain the return on grapes and the return on the produce they're not getting the return they want and what are they doing they're not turning back to God they're returning their investment to do more well, yeah, I must need to do more, and doing more may be right in the long run, but not if you're not acknowledging God in what you're doing in the first place. So, our first response when 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 something's not going the way that we hoped, our first response is not to try a different way. Our first response should be, Lord, search me and search this and give me wisdom and put people with wisdom in my path so that I can make sure that this is even something that You want me to do. Maybe I thought it was You leading me this way, but it was the burritos that I had at lunch. So I need to reevaluate and not, not blame how often we blame God for things not going our way when in reality it's the thing and the way we did it that it didn't go. And say, so, well, man, I, I sure had a feeling that that's what God wanted me to do. Well, you may have, but it may have been the wrong feeling. Right? Because our emotions should not drive us. Truth drives us. And so we should praise God here in this book that He's reaching out to them, that He's withholding, that He's blowing away because what He's doing is He's tending His flock because He loves His sheep. And the same shepherd that is shepherding the people in Haggai is our great shepherd and He loves us and when He withholds from us, it's not because He hates us, it's because He loves us. And so we need to understand that our natural tendency is calamity. Praise God that he's the good shepherd. And sometimes that, that sheep, right, a little lamb, is in such danger that they have to be snatched. You ever been snatched? And you can get whiplash from being snatched. But in order to keep us from going off the cliff, sometimes we have to be snatched. But praise God, whiplash is better than going off the cliff. Amen. Right, let, let me. I'm not going to finish. Let me. Let me just. Let me. Let me just kind of zoom in because I think. We see here the mercy of God. We see how He tends His flock, right? And and I think that there are easier ways to see when we're being outright disobedient, right? We can go to the Word of God and it says, "Thou shalt not," and we're doing it, right? And so we can say, "Okay, easy enough." Or He says, "You need to do this," and we're not, and we can say, "Okay, Lord." But sometimes there's areas in which we may not have God first and we wonder, how can I tell? talked a little bit about this in our elder meeting this week. How how, how can I tell when I'm maybe loving someone more than God? Or loving something more than God? Or pursuing something more than God? And... As I said, there are obvious ways we can see that we're sinning when we go to the word, and it's "thou shalt not" or "thou shalt." But how do we know? How do we know if we're giving something that we should care about? Let me, let me call it inferior pleasures or inferior treasures, because really, when God says, "Consider your ways," it's more than behavior. Because we have to get to the root of behavior. Because there's all kinds of things that can cause us to behave a certain way. So we have to get to the root of it. And what is the root? The root is always that there is an idol in our life when we're replacing God with something else. That something else is an idol now in our life. And idols can be things that are actually intended as good from God. So my wife... Could become an idol in my life. I could become an idol in my wife's life. How do you tell? Love your right? Love your wife as Christ loved the church, can't how, how do I know I'm prioritizing her over God? Love your children. Raise them up in the love and admonition of the Lord. How do you know if you're placing your children above God? Work. House, car, whatever it is. How do you know if you're putting them above God in moment moments of your life? And and How do you know when you're giving treasures, things that are meant to be treasures, right? Our children are treasures. They're gifts from the Lord. Our spouse is a treasure. They're a gift from the Lord. How do we know when we're making those inferior treasures the ultimate treasure? And I think, and I'll close with this, it's how we behave when that inferior treasure is being threatened. Does that make sense? Let me explain it to you like this. When you need to say a tough word to your child and you know, you may, you know that it may cause a rift in the relationship, but you have a biblical thing to say, That relationship with your child in that moment is being perceived as threatened. What do you do in that moment? If you don't do what God is calling you to do, your relationship with your child has just trumped your relationship with God. What do you do when you find out that someone you love has cancer. Because when you find out that that person has cancer, your relationship with that person that you love is being threatened. How do you behave? How do you respond to God? Those are can be and are litmus tests that God gives us For us to see whether something else has replaced him in our priorities. Now we could break it down into sinful behavior. I can come home and I can can act sinfully towards my family because I'm in a bad mood and I I have this dream of how the house was going to go when I got home from work, right? Oh man, I'm driving home from work. It's going to be all sweet. The kids are going to skip up to me and say, hey dad, I love (laughs) you. sit down, take a break. But rather than that, you open the door and it's utter chaos. Parents, anybody else experience that? Just me. All right. How am I going to behave in the moment that what I wanted isn't happening? Am I going to handle it biblically and how god wants me to handle it or is my desire to control the environment that i just walked into more important than behaving the way god has called me to behave that's a small daily litmus test for me to see who's running my life who's the director of my life is it god or is it me Is God just a stagehand that was supposed to give me the home that I wanted when I came home from work? Or is He the director of my life that says, here, here's a situation to show your kids that I'm more important than the home that you just dreamed of walking into? And there's all kinds of examples that we could go, but we're out of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pray, Lord, that My prayer is that we don't read Haggai and see these disobedient people and not see us in their shoes. It's, It's different ways that we're being disobedient because you haven't called us to build a physical temporal temple. But you have called us to participate in the building of the kingdom of God, which is spiritual maturity in ourselves, discipleship and evangelism in others, churches that a church that is unified in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that as we see the sinfulness, just the utter sinfulness in our own heart, as we see that, as we're convicted of it by the Holy Spirit, that we can be saddened, and that sadness be godly contrition and and confess that sin to you and repent of it and ask you to grant us repentance and enable us to repent. And at the same time, in sadness, it's mixed with joy because that sadness reminds us not of our own perfection, but the perfection that we trust in, that we've been redeemed by, that we've been reconciled to you by, and that perfection is Jesus Christ. And so I I pray that you would never stop tending us the way you think we need to be tended no matter how it may hurt because it, it is ultimately for our good and our, not only our temporal good but our eternal good because we're, we're acknowledging once again that you are our God and we are nothing and I mean utterly nothing without you. Oh Lord, we we need you every second of every day. We need you in everything we do. And everything we do is intended to be by you to be used for your glory, whether we eat or drink. And so Lord, I pray that, that you would stir us to examine ourselves and pray that you would examine ourselves and that we would trust in the mercy of and grace and healing that you will provide. And so, Lord, I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.